Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 7th, we're studying Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through chapter 16, verse 15. After spending time teaching and preaching in Antioch, St. Paul embarks on his second missionary journey to territory both old and new. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. He is also part of a church planting team, planting Epiphany Lutheran Church in Bastrop, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. Great to be with you today. So we are in a transitional period here. We've just had a little bit of, I don't know, there hasn't been as much movement, but the movement's about to begin again. What do we need to know going into this text from Acts? Today we find ourselves basically at a pivot point in the go- in the book of Acts, rather, um, between the first and second missionary journeys of Paul. The uh, center point between those two missionary journeys is, of course, the Jerusalem Council, in which the main question of whether it was necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised before they could enter into the Christian faith. That had been settled by the Jerusalem Council, and the answer was clearly uh, that no, that was not going to be necessary for Gentile converts to submit to that uh, part of the Old Covenant. So uh, the Council has met, and you've talked about that already with your other guests, but the verdict, so to speak, has been rendered, and now Uh, A letter is in hand to go back to the churches that were founded on Paul's first missionary journey and had been scandalized a bit by this um, question. And Paul has in mind that he's about to go back out and essentially retrace the steps that he had had on his first missionary journey to visit them once again, to feed these newly formed flocks with the word of God, to tend to them. And what we'll see in our text today is that the Holy Spirit is going to have a little bit of a different idea. We're going to see first a um, contention arise between Paul and Barnabas, and we'll see the purpose behind that in just a moment. We'll see uh, Timothy added to the missionary group of Paul, and we will see that uh, the Spirit is going to take them on a detour away from where they thought they would be going to spread the gospel into a land even further west into uncharted territory in the book of Acts, and the church will continue to grow so uh, vastly through that means. And then finally, the last thing we'll cover today is the conversion of faithful Lydia in the city of Philippi and the implications that that has for us and even for our baptismal identity in Christ. Talk a little bit about the role of the visitation that Paul and Barnabas want to embark upon here. We've talked a little bit about this on Sharper Iron. When it comes to Paul's missionary journeys, at least I know I often have this impression that he goes from one town to the next, starting a new church. But when you look at his journey, he often will go back to cities he's already been to visit these churches he's already established. How does how do those two things go hand in hand? The the going to new cities and then returning to visit. How do those both play into the mission work of Paul and the church still today? Right. There's this duality in the life of the Christian church, and really a, a duality that's necessary in the life of Christian ministers, where we attend to the evangelistic task. Uh, the spreading of the gospel to ears that have not heard it, the preaching there and the the fruit that the Spirit gives. And that's certainly a really wonderful, joyful thing, but also that that word needs to be um, repeated in the hearts of those who are there. Those who have arisen as leaders in the church need to be continually formed by those who had received the apostolic teaching, perhaps in in greater detail. So what Paul is doing is he's balancing those two desires, the evangelistic desire and the desire to Uh, teach good Christian teaching and and practice to the congregations that have already been been formed. So I think a lot of pastors some days feel like we're spinning plates, but that's certainly true for Paul here as he's pulled in many different directions. And the Spirit guides him as to what path he should take today. And what we'll see also is that through the uh, ministry also of Barnabas and the separation that's going to take place, he multiplies 
the workers in the field and, and separates them out to be able to attend to both of these needs in a way that uh, becomes a self-sustaining task and, and leads to the growth of the church. Let's go ahead and jump into the text. We are in Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now we'll pause there to talk about this separation between Paul and Barnabas that we see. We talked about their desire to go back to the towns where they'd already been, see how they're doing, continue to strengthen the saints. What is the disagreement that they have? Why is there a disagreement over this John called Mark and whether or not to take him? Right. So um, John Mark, back in chapter 13, verse 13, departed from Paul and and those who were gathered uh, sharing the gospel in Pamphylia. We don't get a a whole lot of detail there in 1313, but it would be safe to assume that he left for some reason other than an an upright reason. It's not as if, you know, his mother was sick and he returned home to care for her. Our assumption is that there was something about the task that either proved to be too intimidating or too onerous or too laborious that caused him to to stop his work there and, and return back to his home. Paul, it seems, is going to have a much more harsh approach to John Mark and whether John Mark should be allowed to rejoin them. And Barnabas is going to have a softer heart towards him and a more forgiving spirit. And this is almost a a personnel issue that arises, I suppose, in which the way it's described here in Acts 15 is not really described in doctrinal terms. It's not described in terms of Paul being unwilling to forgive or... um, or John Mark being unfaithful. It's really a question of practicality, so to speak. And the two of them are are wrestling at this in a a proverbial staff meeting as to how they ought to proceed. So it it says there's certainly a a sharp disagreement that this wasn't a a fun discussion, and it did result in them separating and going two different directions. Mm -hmm. However, it seems that there is still the unity of the spirit between Paul and Barnabas, even in the midst of the disagreement. Mm, yeah, we should remember. I don't know if we talked about this. We may have previously. John Mark is actually Barnabas's cousin. We learned that in Colossians chapter four, that, that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. And so that's perhaps part of the reason why Barnabas is a little more ready to take Mark back with them because Mm. there's a a relation there. And yet at the same time, we should also notice uh, to to the point that this isn't a doctrinal thing, but it's a matter of, you know, who do we take? You know, Barnabas stuck with Paul when Mark left previously. And so Barnabas is not siding against Paul, I guess, if we can say it that way. there's There's a choice that's made. There's a disagreement that comes about, but not one in which there is a divide in the church. Even though they go two separate directions, There's there still is this unity in the church and the spirit. Yeah, we do have unity in our faith with people whom we may have some interpersonal friction with from time to time. You know, another possibility is that Barnabas and Paul had a little bit of friction already earlier um, when it seems as if Paul, uh, if Barnabas may have been a bit more um, open to Peter's point of view on the, the circumcision question than he was to Paul's. So, mm-hmm. Um, there's a history there, uh, there's a love there, but it seemed wise to them that it would be best for them to do their work separately for a time. And, you know, I think we see that today to some extent. Um, You know, people who love one another, love one another in Christ might realize it might be best for me to do the Lord's work in this place and you to do the Lord's work in that place. And uh, we can avoid some of the interpersonal friction that's going to happen there and, and focus on the work at hand. Well, and, and even if there's not interpersonal friction, just that, or let's see, not friction, but just a, an honest difference of opinion. Paul says, I don't think Mark should come. Barnabas says, I think he should. That doesn't have to cause a rift within the church. There can be two differing opinions, and they, and that's okay in this case. And and then they make it work. And as we've seen other times, if there is some sort of 
sinful ambition on either side, because I suppose we can't rule that out. We're, I think we're speaking of both Paul and Barnabas in the, less, in the best light possible, and right. rightly so, but we can't rule out that there's some sort of sinful disagreement here. If there is a sinful disagreement, then the Holy Spirit still makes good use of this to spread the gospel in two different directions now. Yes, yeah. There is a there is a certain amount of, you know, the Holy Spirit's making lemonade out of the lemons, I guess. But um, you're right. It's a it's a mystery of the text, a mystery of history as to, to what exactly is behind this. But we wrestle with this in the church today when contention arises over what we would call in our, you know, modern terms, terms an audiophron of some sorts. Um, we really struggle with, should that be something that is divisive of the church or should it be something that is not? I mean, the answer is, you know, in the in theological sense, that audio offering are not divisive of the church. They're they're things that we live with together. Um, but I think we all probably have stories of uh, a church on one corner and a church on the other corner in the same town that were once one one congregation too. Sure, that can happen. Or or church in one town and another town that that because of a division. And again. We don't know for a fact why the division happens, if there's a sinful reason behind it, but there is this disagreement. And so they they do split. I think the text would lead to say amicably here. And again, it's a good thing that Paul goes one way with Silas, as we will as we hear, and then Barnabas and Mark go another way, and both places get to hear the gospel now. Yeah, yeah. So they had been clumped together and are now separate to uh, to go their different ways and do their work. Uh, my kids play in soccer. Soccer season just ended. The biggest thing we yell from the sidelines is spread out. That's right. You know, um, they all just stand in a circle around the ball and kick each other <laughs> in the shins. Um, and, and if they spread out, there's room for the game to, to play. Um, and I know you're you're a gardener and I'm trying to be one. You know, certain plants, of course, um, you, you can take a part of them, plant them separately. We did this with some garlic the other day. I think we're too late in the season, but it's yeah. starting to bear fruit in other places where uh, those plants propagate in their own places as they've been separated. And uh, we see the growth of the church happening in that way here. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's also worth pointing out that you do, you find out in Paul's letters that he remains on, on friendly, and friendly is not a strong enough word, uh, but friendly terms with both Barnabas and Mark. Uh, in, mm-hmm. in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, and this is this is an interesting thing because Paul has not yet visited Corinth at this point, and yet he writes to the Corinthians about Barnabas. And you hear about Mark again later, both in Colossians 4 and in 2 Timothy 4. And in 2 Timothy 4, which is near the end of Paul's life, he, he wants Mark to come visit him before he dies because he says Mark is useful to him. So it is, you know, if there is any sort of unwillingness on Paul's part to forgive at this point, there's been forgiveness by the end of by the end of Paul's life. And I think that's worth worth mentioning. Oh, certainly. So we have the gospel now going two different directions. The book of Acts, as is, has been the case really since uh, chapter 13, is going to focus on Paul and his journey. So Barnabas is still doing the work, but he's not going to come up again in the book of Acts. So we pick up the text now with what happens with Paul and Silas now in chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. All right, we'll pause there again. That takes us through Acts 16, verse 5. So Paul's started his journeys with Silas. They start going back to these places that they visited on the first missionary journey. And in Lystra, there's a disciple named Timothy. Tell us a little bit about Timothy. Right, so Timothy, uh, we find, has uh, parents of a mixed background, both um, ethnically and religiously. So Timothy, uh, his mother is, is a Jewish believer, and his father is a Greek. And uh, for whatever reason, we understand that he was uncircumcised as a child. There was disagreement in the home over that question, I'm sure. Uh, there's certainly a, an analog to what happens today when we have um, marriages where one 
parent is a Christian, the other one isn't, or whether one parent is, is a Christian who believes in infant baptism, the other is a, a Christian who does not. And I think many times what happens is that child is, is not brought to the waters of baptism, and Timothy was not brought to the sign of the covenant um, out as would have been appropriate under the law. Um, so we find that he is um, of good repute, that he is someone who is showing promise. We, of course, have First um, and Second Timothy, those epistles later that speak of his, um, his example as a young pastor, of course, um, that's instructive to those who are preparing for the ministry, especially, and, and for those young in the faith. And uh, the question is, what are we going to do about Timothy if he's going to join this missionary group with Paul? And I, I think the answer you might expect, given the recent con, uh, context, is really not the answer that ends up happening in the text. Well, that's right. So all of Acts 15 dealt with this question of, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be Christians? And the answer was very clearly a no. And and even as you mentioned, there's this letter from the Jerusalem Council that's already gone to Antioch. And we find out that this is part of the reason they're going to these churches is to, to tell them what was decided there in Jerusalem. And, and with that background in mind, Paul in verse three is going to take him take Timothy and have him circumcised. What? Why? <laughs> yes, yes. So th- what really happened at the Jerusalem Council is the question of sort of freedom in the gospel has won out over a slavish adherence to uh, the ceremonial law. So just to imagine for a moment, and um, for some of our Midwestern and our Central Texas listeners, this might not be unimaginable, but for other listeners in other places, it might be a, a quite strange situation. But imagine there is a controversy in the church that says, well, pastor, can we have beer at the church picnic? And imagine this has never been the case before, and there is a lot of time and effort and study that goes in, a lot of debate one way or the other, and the voters meeting happens, and we decide, yep, we can do it, and we're going to live in the freedom of the gospel. And the church picnic comes a month later, and um, they go back to the pastor after the decision has been made and said, okay, pastor, we're putting the order in, and he says, no, you're not. We've got a bunch of our Baptist neighbors who are going to be there. It might scandalize them. And nevertheless, the decision was made, but we're still going to, for the sake of our neighbors, um, do that which we don't have to do or abstain from that which we don't have to abstain for the sake of love and care and concern for our neighbors. And, and that's, I guess, an analogous situation to what happens here. There is no reason at all for Timothy to be circumcised. It's not required in any way. It's not salvific for him. Uh, Paul is not even uh, covering himself against some kind of, of um, bad feelings from others, but the text lends itself to say that there are Jews in the region whom they want to uh, preach the gospel to, and the idea is that if Timothy is uncircumcised, they're not going to listen to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a barrier to the gospel receiving a hearing, and in this example, we see uh, Timothy, I don't know if I'd say gladly going to circumcision, but willingly going to circumcision as an adult, a young adult. Um, and that's certainly a example of the sincerity of his faith and his desire to be a witness to Christ. Mm-hmm. So it, it, this, is, this is still the freedom of the gospel, but it's the freedom of the gospel to submit yourself to something for the sake of your brother or to, to do something out of love for the sake of your brother, that freedom is actually to give up one's own rights. The the right in this case to say no to circumcision, both Timothy and Paul, and I appreciate you bringing Timothy's role into it as well as a young adult, they both say that you know, we will forsake our rights here in order to better serve those people to whom we are going to be sent. And and in particularly to the Jewish believers, this matter of Timothy being uncircumcised could become a stumbling block. And so Paul says, let's avoid that stumbling block so that the only stumbling block there might be would be the gospel itself. And, and we'll go ahead and have you circumcised in this case. Yeah. And I think also it has to do with the fact that Timothy is going to be presenting himself as a Jewish believer. Mm. Uh, by virtue of the way that he was raised and the faith that was passed down to him by his mother and his grandmother. So the last thing you could have happen is Timothy preaching as a Jewish convert, a Jewish believer to other Jews that he wants to believe, and then it's found out a little bit later that he's uncircumcised because to them that would say that he would had been lying all along. So to them you couldn't be a Jew without being circumcised. So really in a sense he is being circumcised for the purpose 
of later and eventually preaching that circumcision is no longer necessary on behalf of the gospel or because of the gospel. Uh, there's certainly a, a bit of irony there, I suppose. What about, I mean, so how does this this play into the the larger discussion? I mean, I, I'm thinking of passages, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 9 with the mention of Barnabas, but perhaps more famously from that chapter, Paul talks about becoming all things to all people. Is that a part of what's what's happening here? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. And, and we need to do that too, to an extent that is reasonable and acceptable and doesn't transgress anything that uh, we commit to to the Lord. But I, I can imagine if I moved to some place that was very different than I'm at now and were to do ministry there, and it, there was an entirely different manner of dress in that area, um, it would be incumbent upon me to take upon that manner of dress no matter how much I, I maybe didn't like it or thought it was different than my own personal comfort zone. Um, we have to look at the people around us and remove whatever silly barriers there might be that are in our control to remove um, and, and let the gospel have its course. So with with this conversation, and maybe I, you may have said this already, we're talking particularly about those who we would say are weaker in the faith. That's the way Paul speaks in his in his epistles, is not to cause a weaker brother to stumble. And so in those cases, he has Timothy circumcised. He forgoes the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, even though he knows that he's free in the gospel to do so. He forgoes that for the sake of the weaker brother. Yet we still do have the Jerusalem Council in view, which has this freedom of the gospel, but speaks to those who are perhaps not the weak in the faith, but who are insisting on something from a, a stubborn, obstinate position. And and in this, and I know we're dealing primarily with Timothy, but it is striking that there's another context in which Paul has the opportunity to have someone circumcised, Titus, namely, and he doesn't. So how does, I mean, how do you how do you balance that? Because we don't, there are, there are these opportunities where Paul could have had Titus circumcised, but he didn't. So how do we, how do we discern the difference? It's situational. I, and that, you know, I mean, that maybe makes us a little uncomfortable. I mean, <laughs> certain, certain things are hard and fast lines, but this is an area in which this question is, is a situational question. So you'll enjoy this. I, I think I went to go visit one of my shut-ins the other day uh, in a town, uh, Bastrop, not too far from us here. And I, I did that, and it was, you know, appropriate for me to be dressed in my clerical collar and all black. And I got hungry, and on my way home, I, I drove past a juice place in Bastrop, you know, uh, cold-pressed juices. And I thought, man, what the heck? I'm not out in the middle of the country right now. I'm going to go get me a cold-pressed juice. And I walked in there, and I realized, you know, while, while my manner of dress was completely appropriate for getting into a hospital nursing home and having access there and serving the people there well, my manner of dress was really actually a barrier to me uh, effectively uh, witnessing to the gospel in that context because somebody, I walked in, people looked at me like I had three eyes. They sold CBD infused juices there. I didn't have any, don't worry. Um, I'm glad to hear that. But, you know, I mean, I I don't know that I would have had to, you know, get out my tie-dye t-shirt, but there's probably, it probably was a barrier in that context. So if I were to go back to that place, hoping to uh, to witness the folks there in some way, shape or form, I'd probably choose some different clothing the next time. Well, and, and so there, I mean, I understand that with the barrier, but this matter of sometimes there's the refusal to, you know, so, okay, the next time you go to the juice place, if you, if you do, you maybe don't wear your clerical, but there are, and, and maybe wearing the clerical, I'm not sure how I can and work that, but with there, there are opportunities where someone says, look, you can't do this yeah. or you have to do this. And because of actually the freedom of the gospel, we choose to do what they say we can't or right. to not do what they say we must because in do in so in laying down that law that God has not laid down we are obligated to show the freedom of the gospel right i, I think we're talking about two slightly different sure. scenarios because what's going on here with Timothy is we are placing a christian in the midst of non-christians and he is witnessing to them so he's conforming his life to to their manner in order to to win them over um, in the other example, we're talking about two groups of Christians, one which holds uh, a belief that's not consistent with the text, not consistent with, with, the, with the biblical doctrine, and they're just weaker and obstinate, and the other who really does understand the truth and is trying to bear with them insofar as he can. So, yeah, in, in that instance with other Christians, it is a different story. And in those cases, there are times to say, well, you say I can't, therefore I will. Um, but we got to be careful about that because that's something that rewards our our prideful, 
you know, um, impulses. So we need to be very sure that when we're doing those things, we are doing them for a solid biblical reason rather than just because it gives us a kind of a, a jolt. Sure. And, and, and the reason I bring that out is because of what just happened in Acts chapter 15 mm-hmm. and because of the example in Galatians 2 where Paul says he refused to have Titus circumcised and to recognize the difference between those two, I, I think is, is worth our time to understand. And, and your warning is well heeded that when we take that opportunity to make confession of the freedom of the gospel, let's make sure we check our own sinful pride so that we actually confess the gospel and not just say, ha ha, I did what I wanted, but rather confess the gospel. Right. This is kind of a sarcastic answer I've heard people make, and so maybe it's not real helpful, but it, it illustrates a point where these issues arise between brothers, sometimes even brother pastors, and they, you know, they butt heads and one of them says, fine, I'll relent and go your way as soon as you admit you're the weaker brother. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> And that usually clears it up real quick because nobody sure, wants to admit that and, and they, they move on. <laughs> well, and, and just to, as, a, a, as a way of reminder, uh, take a look at the formula of Concord on these matters, mm-hmm. the matters of, of Adi Afra and, and when the time comes to confess and when the time comes to yield. Paul gives us a great example here in Acts 16 of that time to yield for the sake of the gospel, which he does with Timothy being circumcised. We will pick up more of this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. Talking Acts 15 and 16 with Pastor Nate Hill. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, June 7th. We're studying Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through chapter 16, verse 15 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were looking at Timothy's joining of this missionary group. We've got Paul, we've got Silas, we've got Timothy now. They are going to continue their journey. The churches are being strengthened. They're increasing in numbers daily. Now we're going to see them try to do what they wanted to do in going and visiting these churches that had been established previously, but the Holy Spirit has another idea. So we pick up the text in Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. That takes us to the end of our text today through Acts 16, verse 15. So, Pastor Hill, this first section here is maybe a little bit strange. Paul has seemingly been going where he wants to so far, and now all of a sudden the Spirit directs him in a slightly different way. What's what's going on as the gospel begins to go now to Europe? Yeah, so perhaps maybe we should even just 
try and paint the map in the mind's eye of our listeners because it's easy to to hear these places which are not called by these names in in the modern day. And I've got a map in front of me so we can kind of talk about that a bit. Uh, At the beginning of our our reading today in Paul and Barnabas's um, division, they were in Antioch in Syria. And we kind of know where Cyprus is off of the coast of Syria to the northwest of, of Israel. Uh, There's a little tail at the end that points back towards the mainland, and that's essentially where Antioch is. And then they would follow along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea where it turns to where the land is on the north of the sea instead of the land on the east of the sea. And this whole area today is what we call modern-day Turkey. And sometimes we refer to that whole area as Asia Minor, although when we speak of Asia later on in our text, that's talking about really a subset of what's modern-day Turkey on the far western edge. So they follow along and where they find Timothy, as we talked about before the break, is kind of in the region of Galatia. And that's maybe halfway across from east to west of of Turkey and inland a ways. And they are going to travel basically straight across to the west-northwest until they um, get all the way to Troas, which is on the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea is that sea between uh, Greece and modern-day Turkey. So they cover a lot of ground in what they're referring to as Asia in Acts, which is the western part of Turkey today. And it would have been in there the natural place that you would go if you were building out concentric rings of the spread of the gospel from the first missionary journey. Instead, they go all the way to Troas, and Paul has his his vision or dream of the, the Macedonian man saying to come to him, and they, they go across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia, which is Europe. And this is the beginning of the gospel spread into Europe itself. So they skipped over a little bit of territory from where you would expect. Mm. Um, and the Holy Spirit is recalculating the, the GPS route, so that's to speak. Right. <laughs> and um, that's where they end up to have a foothold there on the European continent. So, and, and just looking at the, the map that I've got, it looks like they, they kind of wanted to turn more north in, in that modern-day Turkey again to kind of circle back around maybe, something mm-hmm. to that effect. But the Holy Spirit continues to push them farther and farther west until, as you said, eventually they're going to cross the Aegean Sea, go into what we call Greece today, Macedonia here. Modern-day Europe is where the gospel ends up going. Uh, one of the the unusual things about this text, although maybe not when we consider it in the context of the book of Acts, unusual by by our standards today, though, is the way that the Holy Spirit does this. I mean, you, you have, you know, they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit in verse six, or the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them in verse seven. And then very clearly, he speaks through a vision in verse nine. What what do we make of that? Yeah, it's very odd and, and subjective, especially to our, you know, kind of Lutheran ears, like to have everything buttoned down and in black and white. First off, we would say, how in the world would the Spirit forbid the word being spoken? Mm. And um, it's a bit of a mystery of the text. It's a bit of something in the hidden will of God. We can certainly, you know, assume the motives that that the idea was that it was more important to preach in the other area. And and of course, as that foothold in the gospel takes place in Philippi, it it can spread back east too to those areas. And and if we're mindful of the entire second missionary journey, um, they will eventually go down the east coast of what is Greece and then across the sea again to Asia, to the area that they had previously been prohibited from entering in and preaching to go to Ephesus before going back uh, back to Israel in the end. Um, Just briefly to that to that point of the Spirit saying, you know, don't preach here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's worth, I think, remembering that at the end of their first missionary journey, they had gone back to these churches and appointed elders there. So these right. churches that they have founded that they do intend to revisit do have pastors there. And I think it's, you know, I know the book of Acts doesn't explicitly say this, but I think it's fair to say that these churches are also proclaiming the gospel, maybe not doing this sort of missionary journey like Paul and Silas are doing at this point. But the fact that, you know, Timothy is already a part of the church there in Lystra indicates that these churches are doing the work of the gospel. I would understand what what's said there in Acts 16 more to say, Paul, it's not your job to preach there. That is for other people. I've got somewhere else in mind for you. Yeah, and it makes me wonder a little bit. I, I'm probably reading into the text a little bit, but our opening uh, verse, you know, Paul said to Barnabas, uh, let's return, visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
you know, um, <laughs> it's not to go back and, and preach the gospel here, although I'm sure that's assumed, no but I, I suppose the spirit is saying you've got more important work right now than to just go see how everyone's doing. Mm. Um, entrust the work of the gospel, as you said, to those who had been raised up in that place and at that time. And, and it's your task to go off to be this missionary to these, these people. Yeah. Yeah. Now what, what strikes me about verse, you know, verse nine really stands out because this is where the vision comes. And Paul concludes that this means we need to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. On the one hand, it it may seem strange. On the other hand, someone pointed out to me previously that, you know, in Acts chapter 10, when there's this moment for Peter to preach to the Gentiles at Cornelius's house, he receives a vision. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think that the fact that there is a vision here marks this as another significant shift and movement in the proclamation of the gospel. Something new is happening, something that Paul obviously didn't have in his mind. And so the Spirit grabs the attention to say, go do this, and he does it through a vision, much like he did for Peter in Acts chapter 10. Right, exactly. And we'll see another similarity too, uh, and since you've read the text already, we can just go ahead and comment on it. Lydia will prevail upon uh, Paul and his traveling companions to stay with her in the same way that Cornelius prevailed upon Peter and his to stay with them for a while. So we have Peter with the gospel going to the Jews or the, the Gentiles whom he didn't expect to be the people he would be preaching to. And you have Paul now who was comfortable kind of in these mixed areas of Jewish and Gentile influence going all the way now into a whole new continent. How does he know it's a man of Macedonia in the in the vision? Well, they they look different. They act different. It's a, They're dressed different. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's going into a place that he didn't imagine either. And the fact that they are met with someone who receives the word in such um, thankful and, and giving faith will be a confirmation to them that, that what they're doing is indeed what the Lord had called them to. One of the one of the things that strikes me about the vision, and and this has been on my mind recently because I, I preached on this text in the Easter season when it when it showed up. Mm-hmm. It in verse nine, this vision is of this Macedonian man who who asks Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. And that leads Paul to conclude that God had called them to preach the gospel. And it, it just it struck me it in a in a mm. context in our own world where sometimes Christians are put down by the world as what do you have to offer? Paul hears this man asking for help and he concludes that means they need the gospel. And I right. that provided some fruitful for reflection for me that we do actually have help to offer and that is in the preaching of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel is the answer to the vague and unnameable longings of of people that they have in this world. They know they need something. They don't know what to call it or what it really is. But when the gospel is preached to them, it's it's a balm to the soul, even even if they didn't understand that what they longed for initially was for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, yeah. And I just, again, I, I found that helpful for my own reflection that it, you know, because as a pastor, there there are plenty of moments where in my own visiting, I think, oh, I, I just need to go see how they're doing. And, and actually, it's it's helpful to know. I have something more as a pastor, and, and all Christians have something more. Certainly, it's, it's nice to visit with people and see how they're doing. But the gospel that we have, this is real help. And even when a person maybe doesn't realize that's what they need, we all do need it, and it, it provides that help. And so I, I found that to be an encouragement in these in these verses. A, another thing, and well, I'll, are, is there anything else in that vision that you see that we need to, to really notice? No, I, I mean, the vision is very straightforward. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that he receives the vision in faith and yeah. um, responds to it is probably the amazing part in my mind. Sure. I, I guess if I had a dream of somebody, you know, uh, dressed in a particular way saying, come over here and help me, I'd, I'd, I'd be tempted to believe that maybe I had just eaten something funny before dinner. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> so I, I do think we wrestle with this as Lutherans and how we take this entire section here of. Paul being very attentive to the Holy Spirit's guidance. You know, do we take that to be a positive example and we're the negative example today? Do we assume that this is something that's a special outpouring of the Spirit at a particular place and time, which I, I guess I kind of tend to lean towards? Well, and I, I think the book of Acts invites us to consider it in that that latter way that you said, that this is, especially when you put it side by side with what happens with Cornelius, that this is a, a moment in history where the, the Holy Spirit is pushing the gospel to a new place, one that had not been on the minds of his his people at the time. And so he interacts with them in this particular special way that we are not given to expect today. And I, I even mentioned this when I was we were 
talking about this in the sermon when I preached on this, that I don't think we should expect a vision for, for us today as to like, who do I need to share the gospel with? Uh, we don't need that vision because I think we can just look through the context in our cell phone and we'll find somebody there. Oh, yeah. Or, you know I mean? We can yeah. look at our neighbors, the people who live next to us, and, and we'll find someone there. We already know these things from the word of God in which the Holy Spirit reveals his will to us. And who is it? Well, just take a look around you. There's someone in your life who needs the help of the gospel. The other, the other thing that is at least worth a mention here in verse 10 is that this is the first time in the book of Acts that we see the word us used. So yep. suddenly Luke's with Paul. Yep, yep. So we have what's called the we source here. It's the first time we have that. The idea is that perhaps Luke is now um, relying not just on other sources, but also on his own travel diaries of his journeying about with Paul. So it, it's certainly something to mention here. It lends credence to the veracity of the book of Acts, which of course we accept by faith anyway, but to understand that uh, at least at this point forward, Luke is an eyewitness of the things that he's recording. Yeah, yeah. And these there's a few of these. This one's pretty brief. It's gonna There's going to be another we in tomorrow's text, and then that drops off for a while until I think about chapter 20. But okay, so Luke is now with Paul among, so we've got Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, among others who are probably right. in this this traveling party, they're going to Greece. And so in, in verse 11, and I know maybe we don't need to know exactly, but these there's various towns mentioned. They finally get to Philippi. Uh, where Where's Philippi on the map? So Philippi is, if you were, it, it's almost the northernmost point of the Aegean Sea. So it is, um, it, it's a coastal town. It's obviously important for um, it, commerce, etc. But it's basically due north of Crete, if that means anything to people. But it's about the furthest north that uh, this missionary journey will will extend. Right, so let's talk about what happens there in Philippi. The Luke is going to focus particularly on the conversion of Lydia, but there's a few things around it. What do we need to, to see as to what happens? And we're going to stay in Philippi for a while here in Acts 16, by the way, but as they get started, what's what do we need to see? Yeah, so first off, it's uh, recorded that Philippi is in the district of Macedonia. It's a leading city, and it is a Roman colony. So that's significant in a, in a sense, as we, of course, know that Paul's a Roman citizen. And um, they remain in the city, it says, some days. It seems as if they're there without a foothold for a little bit of time. Um, I don't know how many days some days is, if it's more than a week or not. It may be just shy of a week because, as it says here in verse 13, that the Sabbath day comes. Uh, and on the Sabbath day, they go down outside the gate, the gate of the city, that is, to the riverside where they suppose there was a place of prayer. So it means we're outside now that area of influence where we would have synagogues established. Um, we are in an area where the Jewish presence, where it exists, will be much less than it ever was in the other places that Paul has been. And so he has to retool his approach in ministry some, some amount. He can't just walk into the synagogue in town start preaching and see what happens. Yeah, it's that that's an interesting note that there's they suppose there's a place of prayer. Apparently in Philippi there's just not a very large Jewish presence. And so they they go where they think they're going to find some people on a Sabbath gathering together. And they're not entirely unsuccessful because Lydia is is named a worshiper of God. Now, which doesn't necessarily mean that I don't think that means she's Jewish, but she's got contact with the people of Israel. She's she's got that she knows a little bit, at least, about who the true God is. Right, right. This would be analogous to the the God fearers, the category yeah. of those um, you know Gentiles in the Old Testament who were um, receptive to the message uh, to the covenant of Yahweh, but were not fully brought in under the covenant entirely. Um, I suppose it's possible. It's just a guess, really, as to how much Jewish influence Lydia would have had. Um, there is a certain natural knowledge that we have of God. It's, um, it's sparse, but um, as God uh, has created us in his image and has endowed us all with a certain conscience, albeit damaged by the fall, um, there are many people out there who, who have a regard for God but don't know him by name yet. So I, I, think, he, I think you're right to say he, that she probably did have a certain amount of Jewish influence, but I don't know that we'd expect her to be on the outskirts of a thriving Jewish community in Philippi. Sure. Uh, her experience may have been elsewhere, uh, yet she sets aside the Sabbath uh, for a time to go to this place of prayer uh, and to pray earnestly 
to the Lord without all the benefits of, of the revealed word in front of her. So talk a little bit more about Lydia, because Luke gives us some details about her. What, what should we see with Lydia here? Right. So we see that she's a seller of purple goods. And uh, the color purple, of course, is the color of royalty. And it is that not really because of its aesthetic appearance, but because of its rarity. So um, she is essentially a dealer in high-end clothing and garments, which would have, have meant dealing in a high-end commodity. There's uh, more of a margin personally for profit and for personal prosperity. So that's another thing about Lydia is that she was a worshiper of God despite the fact that she probably had most, if not all, of her earthly needs mm-hmm. taken care of already. So she has a, a sharp a faith or a conscience uh, in a sense to recognize that, that that which she has is not entirely by her own earning. Um, she recognizes that, that the Lord is to be praised for everything that she has. So uh, she has plenty of, of, of goods. We also find out later that she has an entire household. So she is um, not living in just uh, a family arrangement with a husband and a wife and children and no one else. The household indicates that this is probably a fairly large estate with workers, servants, and the like. Yeah, well, and the fact that she's able then to accommodate Paul and his companions in verse 15 also indicates that she is very likely a, a wealthy woman here who right. who is a worshiper of God and who receives the gospel from Paul. And, and wow, what a what a wonderful thing. The way that Luke writes it, you know, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention, I think is we we shouldn't pass by that too quickly that once again we see how the Lord is the one who brings people to faith through his word. And then she's baptized, and and her whole household. I, I'm not sure if this is the first time we've heard of a whole household. I, I've I know it's going to come up again. We've certainly heard Peter proclaim that it's it's for you and your kids, mm-hmm. but here we have a household being baptized too. This is kind of the go-to text for me. I'm sure it probably is for you too. Of where we understand what all nations means in Matthew 28. If we're to baptize all nations and all nations without um, without any kind of qualification. We would say, especially as Lutherans, because we're concerned about this, that that extends down to the youngest. Um, and a household, of course, would have in, involved all of the children, some of which may may have been Lydia's. We don't hear anything about a husband, but it's possible she could have been widowed, had children of her own. Who knows? Uh, but certainly there would have been children in the larger household, and um, they all are baptized uh, really together at the same time. And that's that's interesting too, isn't it? That we see this sort of mass baptism take place. I don't know, have you ever had the opportunity in your ministry to baptize more than one member of a household and across generations at one time? There there have been a few moments where I've had, say, one a father and a child or four siblings from a, from a family who hadn't been a part of the church before. Those are certainly joyous moments in a pastor's ministry. Yeah, absolutely. But they didn't bring like the gardener along, did they? No, there's usually no gardener. <laughs> no, sorry. I haven't had that one yet. Yeah. Yeah. So it, <laughs> it, it's quite the picture here though, that, um, that baptism is received by all yeah. together. And, and I think that's one of the things that when we have the opportunity to, to bring an entire household in at the same time, it's wondrous when one comes to the, yeah. the waters of baptism, but when you think of the impact that has on an entire family when they come mm-hmm. together, it's it's a really beautiful thing. For sure, for sure. And I should I should remind folks that Acts chapter 10, we had Cornelius and his whole household, and we will see the Philippian jailer and his whole household in the coming text. I thought that happened with Cornelius, but I didn't want yeah, to say it. Yeah, well, I, I, I couldn't, <laughs> yeah, no, but that's that's another example of a household being baptized. So So clearly, this is a... Well, and, and here's here's another thing, because and I'm sure this is true in Winchester, where you have whole families who are who are together, say in a, a church pew, to see to see how a family by blood becomes a family in the blood of Christ as well is just a it's a marvelous thing because then it's it's not just that bond, which is as wonderful a bond as it is to have a wife and have kids and a father and a mother the bond that we share in Christ, this this makes us a household together as well. And when that's shared by a, a family of blood as well, it's just a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, it really is. It's it's beautiful. It's comforting. Um, it, and there's something to this. Many families, you know, if uh, say the husband in the family is ushering one Sunday, will be sure and commune with his own household together instead of, you know, with the other ushers. It's, uh, you know, it's not necessary really, but it's uh, a reflection of the thankfulness I think that that person has in their heart that they as a family can come to the Lord's table together in that unity, not just of blood, but also of spirit.
The, the other thing about, about Lydia, in addition to the, you know, she hears the word in faith, according to the Lord's opening of her heart, then she's very quick to take care of those ministers of the gospel. Just mm-hmm. like, I mean, very similar again to Cornelius, that all of this, and you mentioned this with her wealth, you know, all of this wealth that she has, which she already is, is beginning to use in faith. Now she, I mean, definitely begins to use this in faith as she begins to take care of Paul and his companions. Yeah, it's funny. You know, it's not as if Paul walks in and says, you got a nice place here, Lydia. You know, <laughs> it's it's the other way around because the text says that she prevailed right. upon them to come and stay in the house. They didn't presume that, uh, you know, they've netted a, a wealthy church member or something. Um, she, in her own freedom of her heart has the opportunity to provide a base of operations for the spread of the gospel. Uh, that's, a, that's a very beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, and, and we know from Paul's letters that he was very used to supporting himself as he traveled, making tents. That's his primary occupation. He, he mentions this in several places that he didn't charge people for the proclamation of the gospel. And, and yet here is an, an opportunity for him to have perhaps some rest, you know, and just to, to be provided for by this faithful Lydia. I don't know. Do, do LWML societies name themselves after Lydia? She's one of the, the very faithful women in the book of Acts. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever heard of a Lydia circle. I don't know. I know not. Dorcas uh-huh. and Tabitha, same same person, different different language. Eunice, yeah, Lois. Lydia is the one that rolls off the tongue better than yeah. any of those. I, so, I think I'd, I'd advocate for a, a Lydia If you're looking circle. to start a, an LWML society, consider naming after Lydia, <laughs> uh, the seller of, of purple goods. The Lord opens her heart to hear the gospel. Her whole household comes to faith. Pastor Hill, we've got quite a bit here in this text, all the way from the Jerusalem Council to the separation of Paul and Barnabas to the circumcision of Timothy, taking the gospel to Macedonia, Lydia becoming one of the first converts there in Europe. How do we how do we draw all these things together? We've got about three minutes here to summarize. Well, it's just it's going great, isn't it? You know, we started with a little conflict, and we saw that out of that conflict. Um, multiplication in mission effort has has taken place, and you know we end with um, <laughs> with Paul anyway and his companions enjoying uh, life in an estate in Philippi. I, I think it's great. You kind of wonder, you know, uh, is there some storm cloud on the horizon brewing? Yes, <laughs> and yes, there is. So, <laughs> whoever's with you to tomorrow, uh, we'll get to talk about uh, the. Uh, this is the time that Paul and Silas will be, be thrown into prison, and the Lord will make, make good out of that too. But um, it, it's just amazing to see, see the gospel to have moved so far in just such a short amount of time, all the way from Antioch and Syria, now in, into the European continent, and will spread like wildfire from there. Yeah, yeah. Once again, to see how the book of Acts can so rightly be named, not just the Acts of the Apostles, but the acts of the Holy Spirit. And and very clearly in this text, as the Holy Spirit directs Paul and his companions to take the gospel from Asia into Europe, and he is the one to open the hearts there, the heart of Lydia, who receives baptism with her whole family, comes to faith, the good news of Jesus continues to spread, and even in the midst of persecution, the Holy Spirit continues to be at work. Pastor Nate Hill is pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us today with Acts 15, verse 36 through chapter 16, verse 15. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks. It was a great time. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts 15 and 16, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.